You see, we're in a series in the book of Esther. This is 2021. That means it's the year of becoming, the year of seeking the Lord. How do I align my life so that I can become all that you desire me to be? We ended up pulling out the book of Esther and we designed a series around it called The Queen's Gambit which is a chess move that says, I'm gonna do an upfront sacrifice for a greater benefit later on. And we've been telling you throughout the series, we gotta seize the moment when God taps us on the shoulder. We gotta take that moment, don't let it pass by. Don't let the Holy Spirit pass you by, but lean in, grab it, and let's start doing things that God built us to do, right? So that's kind of the whole series that we're a part of. But here's the challenge. To be part of God's plan means that sometimes we gotta do stuff that's really difficult. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's really scary. But our lives are supposed to be centered around his agenda, not ours. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, here's how you pray, guys. At the beginning, you get your head in the right place. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First of all, it's not about you. He is God, and he is glorious. He is in a place where he can see everything accurate. He is in a place where he can do whatever he wants to do. He is almighty. So get your head back into that and get it off circumstance. And then I want you to pray this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice it's not my will. This is where you shift your mind from your agenda to his agenda, your priorities to his priorities. So we are supposed to be living our lives in obedience to God, but we have a major problem, and it's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. If you're listening online, you can go ahead and fire up the app. It's on there as well. And it's this. It's hard to obey God when you don't trust him. It's hard to obey God when you don't trust him. So how do you build trust with deity? You understand what I'm talking about? Like, I, like I'm, I'm gonna ask you through this whole message because I believe that God's asking you through the whole message to obey him. But that has to stand on top of foundation of trust. You see, every time God taps us on the shoulder, if we don't trust him, we reverse roles and we start acting like the parent. Like, He just gave us a suggestion. We're now going to sort through it on whether or not it's a good idea for us or not. That's improper. He's the father. We're the child. He should be able to tell you, I need you to do this, and you're able to trust him. But if you don't trust him, it's hard to obey. So in order to trust God, there's a couple things we got to get right. There's been a cry in the heart of mankind since the dawn of civilization that says, Can God help me? And does he love me enough to help me? So we're always trying to sort out those questions, right? But trust must be tied to something true. Most of us kind of ignore God as we walk through our lives, and then all of a sudden something bad happens, and we're disappointed in him. God, why would you let this happen? Hold up, did he ever say he wasn't going to let that happen? We're like, there's a breach of trust between you and I. And he's like, ah, I don't think so. I think you made that up. Like that, I never told you that wasn't going to happen. So if we're going to trust, we at least have to trust in something that is legit. And what I mean by that is that if we're going to trust the character of God, it has to actually be what he is like. 
If we're going to trust the actions of God, then it actually has to be stuff that he would do in our scenario. If we're going to actually trust the Bible, then we have to know what it really says to figure out if it's trustworthy. We can't just go along and be disappointed and make assumptions about God. So, there's a difference between trust and hope. I want to tell you the difference between trust and hope. Christian hope and Christian trust are both very powerful. They overlap, but they are not the same thing. Hope means due to how good God is, due to his nature, he does a lot of good stuff. So I'm hoping that he will do something good in this scenario, right? Give me an example. Uh, someone in your family is sick, you're going to go in and pray for them. Now, God did not tell you in advance he was going to heal them. But you know that God is good, God is all-powerful, and that prayer matters. So you're going to walk in with a certain amount of confidence and hope that God is going to heal the person you're praying for. But that's not trust. That's hope. Trust is that God already said it clearly. It's locked, but now situation is causing you to doubt it. So, for example, if you said, am I going to go to heaven? If you accepted Jesus Christ, that already locked. You understand what I'm saying? That Jesus said, I already traded my life for yours. You're already going to be with me. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You're like, yeah, but I haven't been very good the last 10 years. And he said, hold up. It was never on you in the first place. It was on me. So you can take it to the bank. You can trust me that I know how to get my kids home. That's trust. They're very similar, but a little bit different. But in order to trust, we have to assess our past with God, rightly. We don't, we're not born today. Man, we've been walking with God for a while. You may not even have noticed it. But let's go back and look at our lives. What did God really do? Right? So let's talk about it. What actual promises in God's word turned out to be true in your personal life? As a Christian, has God guided you as he promised he would? As a Christian... Has the Holy Spirit been changing you internally as he promised he would? As a Christian, did Jesus really die on the cross and raise from the dead like the Bible says he did? If your answer to those is yes, you have a foundation of trust. We just got to build off that. But we got to get to know him accurately. And everybody's got an opinion of what God's like. Here's one of the big problems in our world. We tend to remake God in our image. That is a major problem because if you, are, if you are super serious, you picture God being super serious. If you're funny, you picture God with a sense of humor. If you are super easygoing, you picture God kind of hippie-ish. If you're like super intense, God's always driven, right? But with all these personalities and all these opinions, what is God like? It's not all those. So what is he really like? Well, I would rather trust him describing himself. There's a couple times in the Bible when God flat out says, I'm like this. One of those great passages, and I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to read it along with me, but maybe you jot it down the verse so you can read it a little bit later. But it's Exodus 34, 6 and 7. You see, the Ten Commandments guy, Moses, right? He's up on a mountain with God. And he's like, hey, if I'm going to be leading your people 
like through one of the hardest times in history, I've got to know more about you. Can you please tell me what you're like? God said, yes, I can. I'm going to pass by you and I'll tell you. And this is what he said. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's it. Seven qualities. Could have grabbed thousands of qualities. God is pretty big. Grabs seven of them, drops them down, and says, if you ever come to a conclusion by your circumstances or something you heard that I'm not like that, you're missing some pieces. I'm at least this. I may be a whole bunch of other stuff, but I'm at least this. So if you're not seeing me like that, something's wrong. What is that list of seven? We'll put them on social media later, but you don't have to write them down. But here's the seven again. That God is merciful, gracious, patient, extremely loving, extremely faithful, extremely forgiving, and he is just. Can you trust a God like that? I don't know how you couldn't. You understand what I'm saying? Like, if that's really what he's like, why wouldn't you want him in charge of everything? You're not like that. You're not this good. Man, I would trust him with everything. But life is going to push you to the point to see what you really trust and what you don't. You see, the story of Esther is full of risk. And she's going to get pushed to the limit. And that's where we're at in our story. Let's go back to the book of Esther. Would you turn with me to Esther chapter 4? Esther chapter 4, if you're following along with me in the ESV, it's page 412. Esther chapter 4. But I'm going to give you a real quick recap in case you just joined us on this story. Boy, you missed a lot, right? You ready for previously on Esther? (laughs) Ready? Here's what you missed. This nobody young lady wins a beauty contest and becomes the next queen of the Persian Empire. You find out she's married to psychopath. The guy's not, this is not exactly an awesome dude, but he has this right-hand man who's even worse. That guy's name is Haman. Well, Esther was raised by her older cousin, her adopted dad named Mordecai. Mordecai and Haman get into this beef. And then all of a sudden, Haman's like, not only do I hate you, but you're a Jew. I hate all Jews. Leads the king in a manipulation effort to launch a purge day where one day coming up months from then, everyone in the kingdom of Persia is allowed to kill and slaughter all Jews and steal all their stuff. That's where we're at in the story. Boy, you missed a couple episodes. You might want to go back and listen to those. It was pretty awesome. So let's pick up the story in Esther chapter 4. I'm gonna, we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to paraphrase some, and I'm going to read some. So let's begin with a paraphrase. Mordecai, the adopted dad, finds out about the edict that all Jews are going to die, and he goes into mourning. Now, Jews are not shy when it comes to sharing emotion. 
Like they are all in your face. So he's dropping ash on his head. He's wearing sackcloth. He's laying on the ground. He's yelling out and praying out loud. He wants everybody to know that. And he works for the palace. So he's at the palace gate doing all this stuff. Everyone's like, uh, Esther, your dad's freaking out. And she's like, oh, come on. Hey, uh, you know, Mordecai, what's going on? What's going on? So she's sending people, sending messages. She's not supposed to come out and see him. So she's like, dude, you got to clean yourself up and tell me what's going on. So he ends up sending some messages back and he's like, all the Jews are going to die because of Haman. Have you even heard this yet? And this is craziness. Esther, I need you to man up. I need you to go in and talk to your husband. I need you to go in there and tell him you can't let this happen. You gotta tell him, you're a Jew. You gotta protect the Jewish people. This is all of your people that are gonna get slaughtered if you don't stand up. Her response, yeah, so about that. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Because Mordecai, you know as well as I do, we don't live in Jerusalem. I li we live in here. And you know what? I'm married to a psychopath. You know that as well as I do. Because honestly, here's the deal. If I bug him at work and he doesn't want me, he cuts my head off. That's what I'm saying. Like, this is a really weird scenario. I've been married to this dude for five years. We don't even have a relationship. He's had so many women since then. Yeah, I'm his queen. But quite frankly, I haven't even seen the guy in a month. I cannot just walk in. If I walk in on him in a bad day, which seems to be every day, he'll kill me. So that whole plan, yeah, that would be a no. Hmm. So she doesn't want to do it. Do you blame her? <clears throat> you know, we always kind of judge people in biblical stories and, well, you should have more courage than that. Well, I don't know. Hold on. What if, rare God is going to ask you to die for him, but what if God asked you to lose everything for him? Would you do it? Would you lose all your friends if he asked you to? Would you lose your job if he asked you to? Because if you're balking at that, what do you think you were going to do in this scenario? Imagine that she was probably won the beauty contest at 16. That means she's probably 21. When you're 21 years old, you're ready to save the whole world and put your life at risk. You may save no one and just die. You're going to do that? I don't blame her at all. This is hard. Now, she didn't think in terms like this, but looking back, in hindsight, she's at a critical juncture. Now, this is me talking, not her talking. But I'm thinking, this is a pivotal moment in her life. She has an opportunity to either be what the world says she is or what God says she is. Up to this point in her life, she has been seen in the world's eyes as nothing more than the pretty girl that doesn't talk. As a matter of fact, it is in this moment that she can make a choice to go from a trophy wife, which is what mankind made her, to become what God made her, which was a queen. What's she gonna do? You know, I would suggest to you that the world's going to have an awful lot to say about who you are. You see, the world's going to pressure you into a mold. And the reason why is it's a lot easier. 
They're going to say things about you that are not true. They're going to assume things about you, and then they're going to lock you into it. That the world decides if you're going to be a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker. That, that the world decides whether or not you're going to be popular or not. They're going to decide whether or not they like you or not. They're going to decide whether you have a voice or not. And they're going to make all these assumptions and determinations, and then once they lock you in, don't you dare rock the boat. Do not do something that they don't think is in agreement with what they told you to be. There's only one problem with that. We don't answer to the world. We answer to God, and we answer to God alone. Huh. You see, I honestly don't care what your role is, it just better be God-ordained and not world-pressured. You understand what I'm saying? Now, for all of us, this might be different. For some of us, the world told us to shut up, and we actually need to find our voice because God said so. Other people, it's the opposite. The world has told you you have to fight about everything, and you need to mellow out because God told you to. There are some of you that people have always said that you are not capable, but God told you to launch a business, and he put a dream on your heart. There are others of you that they told you that you have no value unless you work in the work world, but God called you to take care of your family. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everybody's got a different path to walk, and I don't care what it is. I'm just saying it better be God-written and not people pressured. If God told you to have a voice, you have a voice. Let's pick it up in verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. So remember, she's sending messengers back and forth to her adopted dad. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, that she wasn't going to do it. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house, you'll die. And who knows whether you've not even come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's a lot of pressure. It's really hard to disappoint somebody you love. You know what I mean? Or they're looking at you like, who, why wouldn't you do this? Now, we love when God gives us win-win callings. You know what I'm talking about? It's late at night. You hear the voice of the Lord. My child, yes, Lord, I need you to become a millionaire. <laughs> yes, Lord, for your will. I will. Absolutely, Lord. In fact, if you, if you want, I will be a multi-millionaire. <laughs> right? Or another one. My child, yes, Lord. I need you to become famous. Oh, Lord, here I am, send me. Right? But you see, sometimes God's callings are really, really good for his kingdom, not so good for you. Sometimes they line up, sometimes they don't. You see, see David was asked to kill a giant, but he hated that giant in the first place. You guys remember how that story went? He ran at the giant. I mean, he was like, I got rocks. I will knock his head off. Like, dude, I hate this guy. Give me some rocks. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, you know, let's do it. And he runs at this giant, hacks his head off. And I mean, 
He was like, yeah, take that. Abraham was asked to kill his only son that he loved, his precious child, the one who his lineage would go through. That's a big different calling. Mordecai says to Esther, don't think that you're going to escape this. You see, the great lie of disobedience is that it provides safety when I would suggest to you it does not. As a matter of fact, let me ask you a question. What do you want out of life? Because there's some of us that are living so much in our comfort zone, I feel like you believe that the goal of life is just to stay in as long as you can. Like that's the big goal. Just keep existing. But I think we're here to do the will of God and go out in glory. So are you trying to live or are you trying to merely exist? Because each and every time we say no to God, we're choosing mere existence and not truly living. And I just tell you, I think you are built to do adventures with God. I think that if you don't, your, your Christianity is gonna be boring and the enemy is gonna take advantage of you. Because the only Christianity exciting is when it's put into practice and you're living in risk and you need to learn everything just to survive. But if we're not doing anything, who cares? You know, it's interesting because he's like, so you were in that palace. Don't you think that in your comfort you're going to escape? There's a weird lull that comes with comfort. It is rare that we see great things done by people with great comfort. You know who said that? Me, I just said it. <laughs> if you look back through history, isn't it the scrappy people? Isn't it the desperate people? Man, it's the people that, like you go back through history, there was no great story that starts, I was in my sleep number bed <laughs> doing nothing when all of a sudden the world changed. That's not a thing. It's always like, oh, the one guy, well, I guess I'm either going to lead the revolution or I'm going to die. And I, you know, it's those kind of people. It's all the scrappy fighters and all that stuff. So when desperation is no longer your motivation, you better come up with a motivation for obedience. Otherwise, you're going to drift into nothingness and lose meaning. Ask yourself this. What might God be calling me to be or do, but I'm dismissing it because it's going to disrupt my comfort level. Anybody got one of those you got to ask God? So then, in my opinion, Mordecai comes in with a big bomb. This is probably the one that would motivate me or freak me out the most. He drops a 2,500-year-old FOMO bomb. What did he say? If you don't do this, God will rise up a deliverer that's someone else and he will bypass you, but he'll get it done. You guys, to me, that's the most terrifying thing. Here's why. I never, ever want to find out that because of the situation of my heart, God had to go to my neighbor, tap them on the shoulder to do something amazing for him. That freaks me out. As a matter of fact, I've been in ministry a really long time, you guys. 
And I've done all kinds of stuff. I've led all kinds of change. I've brought a lot of things out, and I've lost a lot of friends. I've lost a lot of leaders. I've had a lot of pain. I've had a lot of heartache. But you know what? The reason why I did those is because I believed that they were right, not because they were easy. And I will tell you this. You know what terrifies me more than being abandoned by my friends? God bypassing me the Holy Spirit bypassing me. If there is ever a revival in this area and I'm not a part of it, I'm gonna fall apart because the number one thing I care about is that I'm in the will of God, that God is going to use me, that whatever he's gonna do in my midst, I wanna be in the front row. I am terrified of him having to pass me up. I'm just saying, is it hard to do what God wants you to do? Yeah, it is. Can I do it another way? No, I can't, because the other way's worse. Hmm. You know, there's been a lot of missing opportunities throughout history, hasn't there? I came across these stories online, and I wanted to read them to you because I thought they were, they were fascinating, and the way they wrote them was so brilliant. They said this, in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell had a gadget he called the telephone. Now, he wanted to commercialize it and offered the patent to Western Union for $100,000, the equivalent of $2.4 million today. He told them he wanted to install telephones in every city in America. They said no and described his device as idiotic. In 2014, the world reached a point where there are more active mobile phone devices than people on the planet. Idiotic devices indeed. Oops, you passed on the telephone. That was kind of an opportunity, yeah? Hmm. Poor Kodak. Once the king of camera film and then digital arrived. Must be particularly galling given that it was its own invention. Back in 1975, one of Kodak's engineers, Steve Sasson, developed an early concept for the digital camera. He told his employers, assuming they'd be delighted, they were not. Kodak saw it as a threat to its main business of making traditional film, so it suppressed the technology and hoped it would never see the light of day. Unfortunately, it did, and the rise of digital meant the company only narrowly escaped bankruptcy. Yee! Another one. Back in the 1970s, Steve Wozniak was working for Hewlett Packard. He tried to get the company interested in a new personal computer he was building but it rejected the idea and said people would never use computers at home. Instead, he and his friend Steve Jobs went into their garage and built it themselves. And that's where we got the Apple One. You want another one? Yes. These are fun. Yet another person who bailed on Apple during its early days is Ronald Wayne, who is a lesser-known third co-founder of the tech giant. In 1976, Wayne drew up the agreements allocating roles to himself, Steve Jobs, and Wozniak, and also created Apple's first logo. As the oldest and most financially secure of the three, Wayne became concerned that any business debts would fall on him, and he sold his 10% stake in the company just 12 days into his role for a meager $800, the equivalent to $3,660 today. Apple's value has since grown to more than $2 trillion. So if Wayne had kept his share, it would be worth $201 billion today. Oops. <laughs> Awkward. How many men in the first century 
opted to pass on the new startup by that rabbi Jesus. When he said, I will make you fishers of men. How many men got passed over to become an apostle because their heart just wasn't in it? Really, you didn't get a chance to be the first 12 that would launch all of Christianity upon the world. I don't want that to happen. But you see, this obedience issue for Esther, all this pressure, yes, obedience can lead to participation in God's plans, but it's also an act of love. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And you go, I don't understand why you would say that. Like, I don't obey my boss at work because I love him. I don't even like that guy. And that was Jesus' point. I'm not just your boss. I'm not a walking rule. As a matter of fact, I'm the one that dotes on you every day. I'm the one that provides for you. I give you the very air that you breathe. I'm the one that is feeding you. I'm the one whispering to you when you're scared. I do everything for you. You tell me I'm the one that loves you the most and you love me the most. But when it comes to obedience, it seems like you're doing your own thing. We do not obey God to get a spot in heaven. We obey God because we already have a spot in heaven. And because we have a spot in his family and we have a spot in his heart. That's why we do it. So Mordecai warns her, he's like, man, if you don't do this, you and your father's household are going to die. There is collateral damage. There is consequences of saying no to God. Why? Because he designed it for a blessing. When we don't do it, there's a non-blessing. And in other words, it is designed just for you. It's why God tapped you on the shoulder. Can he get somebody else to do it? Yeah, but it's probably not going to be as good. He built it for you to do it. That's why I talked to you first. And if he gives you that opportunity and you take it, your life is going to have more meaning and it's going to be rich and it's going to be good. But if you decide not to do it, it's possible something may happen with me. Something may happen with somebody else you care about. God's trying to stop that. Hmm. He says, who knows, Esther, whether or not this is the whole reason why you're in the palace in the first place. Such a time as this. You guys, this is about God calling you. You think that his tapping you on the shoulder is an accident. He's been working on you and getting you in the right position for years. That's why he called you. This is how it went, verse 15. Then Esther told them the reply to Mordecai, okay, go gather all the Jews to be found in the capital, hold a fast on my behalf, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast just like you. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. I told you she wasn't super religious, but you know what? When it got desperate, guess where she went? To God. She's smart enough to figure that one out. It was either going to be all God or nothing. How's it going to go? They don't know. It could end with her just being dead and the whole story ends up stopping. But here's what's interesting. She calls in her ladies to fast with her. What is this whole fasting thing about? Why does it matter whether or not you're eating or not eating while you're praying? Well, fasting is a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline means you're doing an activity that gets your head in the game. 
You're doing an activity that says no to you, but yes to something more important. And there's a bunch of spiritual disciplines, silence and solitude and fasting and celibacy and, right? Charity and all these different things. What it is, is you're prepping now today to have power tomorrow. You're not doing it to look good. You're not doing it to check off some holy box. You're doing it for a practical purpose. You're trying to train so that you can do what God asked you to do. So she knew that. She's like, I'm getting my ladies together. You guys fast. We're all going to fast. Same thing. We're about to have the worship, prayer, and healing night in November here at Bridgeway. So I'm going to ask you to do a spiritual discipline process for 40 days. Some of you are going to fast this. Some of you are going to fast that. We're all going to prep. Why? So that we get out of our head into God's head, get prepared. So on that night, we're ready to fight. That night, we're going to be praying heaven down and hell out. You know what I'm talking about? That's why we prep for it. We train for it. So she knew that. She gets her ladies involved. Here's a quick question for you. There are some of you that are suffering right now, and God has laid on your heart that you need somebody to back you up and pray with you, but you're too prideful. You won't ask for help. Why? Well, you don't want to admit that you're having a hard time. You don't want to be needy. You don't want to, I don't know what it is, but I'm telling you right now, it is very possible that the answer to your situation is on the lips of the prayers of your friends. I need you to let them in and ask them to pray for you because you need them and they need you. Yeah? Community is essential when obedience becomes really difficult. It is way easier to do something big for God when you have people that are backing you up. People praying for you, loving you, supporting you, and encouraging you. We need each other. Too hard to do it alone. Well, let me tell you how it goes. In Esther chapter 5, she does. She goes to the king. Goes a little something like this. Ding dong. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here to see the king. All right, hold on. Hold on a second. Uh, sir, we have an Esther to see you. Esther, Esther. Oh, my wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, bring her in. Bring her in. Okay, you can come on in. She comes in. Esther! Woman, I have not seen you in a minute. It's been a while. You are, you're looking fine, might I say. It's so good to see you. Why, are you. why are you bothering me at work? What's going on? I haven't seen you in like, what's it been? Like a couple days? A month? Oh, right. Uh, you good? You need some help? I can do whatever you need. Like, you need my kingdom. I'll give you my kingdom. What do you want to do? Oh, I was just here because I was going to ask um, if you and Haman would, would come to a party. I'm going to throw a party. A party? Esther, I knew I liked you. You know what? You like partying. I like partying. I think this is a great idea. I, I actually think that, yes, I'm going to be there, and I am bringing Haman. I mean, if, if anybody knows how to play Settlers of Catan, it's him. Am I right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to join you. So we're going to be what? Like eight-ish tomorrow? Like we're going to, what are we going to have? Okay, good. Yeah. Well, I got it. Yep. Absolutely got it marked down. That's cool. No, no, no. I'll be there. Okay, good. Okay, yeah. I got to run. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, okay bye-bye. Good to see you too. Hey, guys, can you write down? I'm going to be somewhere at 8 o'clock. I'm totally not going to remember that. All right, fantastic. Okay, next. That's how it starts. 
All of a sudden, it comes party time. Haman and the king are over, and she's got this killer banquet for them, and they're having fun, playing games, drinking, everything. Finally, the night winds down, and, and the king is like, man, it's been good. I love spending time with you. You know what? You're one of my favorite wives. I, I, I think you're awesome. So anyway, I've had a lot of grapes. Whoa. <laughs> and so why am I here? You need something? I'll give it to you. Well, you know what? I was thinking that if, if it was okay with you, that I would like you and Haman to come back tomorrow for another party. An another party. Esther, you know what's better than one party? two parties. I think this is good. I, I like the way you think. I love being with you. This is so fun. I feel like we need to spend more time together. This is great. Heyman, are you free? Yeah, I thought you were. Okay, cool. So yeah, we'll be back here tomorrow. That's a great idea. Absolutely. Okay, well, we're going to go. Okay, bye-bye. On the way home, Haman's going home and he is like, I am so popular. <laughs> I got to go to a totally private VIP, right? <laughs> and I was like, I'm there with the king and his wife and everything. It was a little awkward being the third wheel. But anyway, it was super fun and, and I'm such a big deal. <laughs> and he's walking home and he goes past Mordecai at the city gate. Guess who doesn't bow down to him? That Jewish guy. And he goes ballistic. His mood shifts from super high all the way down. He goes home, he comes, slams open the door, slams the door shut. He's like bawling like a little baby. Oh, I hate my life. I hate everything about, I hate that guy. That guy needs to die. I have, blah, blah. And they're like, whoa, dude, what is wrong with you? You texted us like 20 minutes ago and you said you're having the best day of your life. And now all of a sudden you're all freaking out. Like, like your life just fell apart. What is the problem here? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, hold on, slow down. It's the Mordecai guy. He's so mean to me. I hate him. I want him to die. Okay, okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. You know what? Here's the deal. Here's all we need to do. Come on, sit down, sit down on the couch. Here's what we need to do. We're going to make a 75-foot super sharp pole. We're just going to stick him on it. Okay. Oh, are you going to, really, you do that for me? I, that's, a good, that's a good idea. Okay. Okay, okay. Stick them on a pole. Stick them on a pole. Okay. All right, I feel better. Okay. Okay, what is this? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre family? Who the heck came up with that plan? Are you kidding me? And he's all, oh, that's a good idea. I feel better. You're weird. Something is wrong with you. You guys... Esther has this major decision. Am I going to die for the Lord and my people? We're probably not going to have those, but we're going to have a bunch of little choices every day. We're going to have all these, hey, would you do this for me? Hey, would you do this? Well, God, it's a little bit awkward. That's basically what we're going to have. What I'm asking for us to do is to align our lives and get our head in the game so that we're able to say yes. Right? but we gotta build some trust in order to do that. So I'm gonna pray for us. If you are brand new to this whole thing, you're not a Christian, I'm here to tell you, Jesus' arms are wide open. You're his favorite. And he would love to rescue you and save you. The whole point of him coming here and dying on the cross was you. 
So this is a prayer where we're gonna say, yes, God, take care of me, right? And then if we're Christians, I want God's love to overwhelm us and melt our hard heart. And then us to grow in love for him so that we do things for the right motivation, yeah? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this beautiful time, I ask that, that God, that your love would overwhelm us. God, there's some of us, this is our first time ever being told that you want a personal relationship with us. And God, we want that. Right now, it seems like the most brilliant plan ever. We don't even know how it works. But Jesus, we've been told that you said you would trade your perfect life for our broken life and that we could be a new creation and a new start with you. So we willingly give you our sinful, selfish existence. And we ask that you would lead us and guide us and be our dad. God, as Christians, there's some of us that, Lord, we have consistently told you no, and you've had to use other people. And right now, that breaks our heart. So we're asking, Lord, whatever it is that we need to align, whatever it is we need to change in our minds or our hearts, we say yes to you. Would you align us with your spirit? In Jesus' name. Amen.